0: Let's do one, two, three, four, five, and then clap on six, okay? But you got to do the ands. One and two and three and four, that? Yes. And then we'll clap five and and clap on six? Yep. Okay, here we go. Ready? hmm One and two and three and four and five and... Oh, I forgot to clap.
1: God damn it, really?
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider...
1: And your other host, Clay Wells. You're welcome. Hi, we're here. We did it. All right. Good night, Dark Continent. Good night, Dark Continent? What's that? Uh, It's what you say if you're in like a metal band and you're leaving the stage. You say, good night, Dark Continent. We are Cannibal Corpse. Nice. It's just a hard rock trope. You know all about hard rock tropes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I did write a couple books about hard rock tropes back a few years ago.
1: What were the names of them?
0: One was called I flushed My Life Down the Toilet and I Don't Give a Fuck. And the other one was called Oopsie Daisies.
1: All right, I remember reading Oopsie Daisies. That was a New York Times bestseller if I recall. Well, yeah,
0: it was. I made a lot of money from both of those books. Enough to buy a castle in Spain. I haven't been there, but I have so many properties at this point that I don't like to go visit any of them.
1: I actually got into a legitimate potentially friendship ending argument once with a friend of mine we were wanting to start a cover band when i was in birmingham cover bands were making all the money and we were already in a cover band together we didn't really like the direction of the cover band we kind of wanted to be more of a party this cover band we were in was more of a rock band that was concerned with being cool we were like fuck it there ain't nothing cool about being in a cover band we may as well make the money and we had this great plan we were going to recruit this great singer and this great drummer but we were like the you know we were the leaders and it never happened and we almost quit speaking because he wanted to call the band super duper. Mm, that's I not just, good.
0: <laughs> that's <just laughs> definitely not super duper that name.
1: Yeah, like I'm cool with the concept of something can be super and even super duper, but I was like we just had this plan for this band to like just destroy the town. I'm like, dude, it ain't happening if we're calling it super duper.
0: What was your suggestion for the band? We yeah. never
1: even we never even got there. The whole concept ended up folding because we got it he was so convicted about super duper he thought it was funny because it's so bad right but it's yeah well there's no accounting for anything no and i haven't talked to him in over 10 years at this point i've been in some terrible i mean there's no worse name for a band than bob schneider i think it's good though because you were in these other bands that were like really notable around Austin and even ugly Americans was like national touring. But when those bands didn't work, Joe Rockhead, no one, you know, I remember Tom Petty saying that about mud crutch. What his first band was called Mudcrutch,
0: horrible name,
1: horrible. And <clears throat> they didn't make it, you know? And then after everything they went through, when mud crutch failed, he had to, he, he said, no one knew who Tom Petty was, even though really he was writing. He was still, he was still Tom Petty. And, You calling your thing Bob Schneider, but don't you call it Lonely Land? Didn't you kind of have like a subtitle kind of Lonely Land, kind of an idea?
0: I called the Monday nights at Saxon Pub Lonely Land.
1: And you called your first solo record Lonely Land, right?
0: I titled the record Lonely Land. But unlike Wilco, like Wilco called itself Wilco, even though Jeff Tweedy was the songwriter. Yeah. And originally going into the studio, I was going to call... I was gonna call. I was gonna. I was gonna do the same thing as Wilco, but I really didn't want anybody in the band to get confused and think it was a band.
1: <laughs> well, because you'd already done that.
0: I'd already. I wasn't gonna do that again. So I mean, I could have just gone to everybody and go, "Hey, you guys do know this is my solo project, right? And you guys are just playing on this record, and it's called Lonely Land." But instead of doing that, I was just like, "I'll just call it Bob Schneider," and then absolutely nobody will
1: get confused. Well, I think that's smart. But then
0: the world was confused with how
1: bad the name Bob Schneider was. How can it be? It's just your name.
0: I know, but it's just a horrible name. It'd be like if Bob Zimmerman stayed with Bob Zimmerman instead of Bob
1: Dylan. Bob Dylan's pretty good. It's so much better than Zimmerman. It really is. Like Elvis Costello, that's not his name. What's his name? (sighs) Who knows? Dick Wad Dave or something. There was a kid that used to come in the guitar store I worked at. And he was a Mexican kid. His name was Elvis. And one day, I just got a kick out of the fact he was named was Elvis. And one day, I said, "Why did your parents name you Elvis?" He was a cool little kid, little rocker kid. Here's what his name was: Declan Patrick McManus. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. Well, Sting's name is Gordon, so it's like he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna be Sting."
0: Gordon Sumner is actually not a bad name, but Sting is even cooler
1: than that. But but you know, some of these names though, they're only cool when the art. Works like if Sting made bullshit, we'd be like, "You called yourself a verb? You suck, Sting!" But because his music's so cool, anyway, this kid Elvis, Mexican kid, I said, "Why? Why did your parents name you Elvis?" And this sort of look of mild shame came over him. Like when you have to explain a bad tattoo, and he said, "My parents named me Elvis because they thought that Elvis Presley was the king of America, and they wanted to name me after." the king of America, because Elvis was, you know, the king. Right. It is funny how some people get really caught up on, is blah, blah, blah a band? Is blah, blah, blah an artist? When, I mean, why do you think Jeff Tweedy allowed it to be called Wilco all this time?
0: I mean, I think he liked the idea of, I mean, that, I do feel like Wilco is probably like a band band. I have a feeling. There are no original members. Oh, it's just him and then a bunch of hired guns.
1: I mean, he's had his drummer for a long time, like him and the bass. Well, you know what? The bass player is original, John Stewart. But yeah, his, he fired his guitar player, who famously died not long after Jay Bennett. A lot of the guys now have been in the band for a minute, but it definitely is not the band that started as Wilco. I mean, Wilco is Jeff.
0: So yeah, so it's just a it's it's like
1: Bright eyes for Conor Oberst. Man, the tales I'm hearing about that guy oh what have you heard just that he's a mess and that his shows are that he's just very drunk at his shows can oh. hardly can hardly sing and play oh,
0: you know how that fills me with joy
1: it also makes me
0: happy to see people fail for some reason dude i love nothing more than watching another man fail especially if he's doing what i'm doing
1: it's primal oh
0: it's so nice
1: it's so satisfying it's just like salve on a on a on an existential wound but yeah and it helps if they're shitheads which i don't know about him but you know there's this morgan wallen guy this country guy who's selling out stadiums keeps finding ways to fuck it up like this vi- video went viral of him saying the n word he got disinvited from snl he did this whole I'm going to get better. I'm an alcoholic. I just had a new son. I'm going to get my life together. Then he's in a bar drunk in Nashville, pouring beer on some chick. Now he's doing these stadium shows where he's, he's having to cancel the day of the show after the openers have already played because of quote unquote exhaustion. But the the word around is that he's just getting too hammered during the day. Alcohol poisoning can hardly move. He's drinking so much. And there's something about that that makes me happy. Oh, dude.
0: Just, I'm overjoyed. I'm overjoyed
1: to hear that. Does it make you feel like a shithead to feel that? No. Because uh, we're we're just naming something that I think all people feel. But it does feel weird to say it out loud. I feel like we're breaking some sort of social rule.
0: I mean, if I knew the guy, if he was a friend of mine, and I could get backstage and hang out with him on the rag and then also enjoy some of his fame and fly around in his jet and stuff and, like, ride on his bus, then I would feel a little bad about it. But since I don't know him, yeah, dude, it fills me with glee.
1: But here's the thing about you. You've had those opportunities. You're not that guy. You've had people want you to come fly around with them and come backstage. You threw away Sheryl Crow's number you won't return, you know, so and so's phone calls.
0: But I didn't know I didn't know she was Cheryl Crow at the time. I didn't know she was Cheryl Crow Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Cheryl Crow. She was just Cheryl Crow some chick who had written a song called Leaving Las Vegas that was barely
1: okay. It's funny that we mentioned we were talking about Cheryl in the last episode and I got in my car. I listen to the radio now in my car pretty much 24/7. Nice. But all old shit. <laughs> I'm not trying to tap into the current country climate so i can write one of those songs and i'm not trying to see what fucking diplo's up to it's just all the classics and anyway that song came on pretty good pretty strange song the leaving las vegas one no uh all i want to do is have some fun
0: dude i'm telling you from the minute i heard like just the introduction of that song i'd never heard it and we were we were leaving the horde tour there was the sea of people in front of that stage where Sheryl Crow was playing, and I just couldn't understand. I was like, what is going on? And then, ding, 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 All I want to do is, I'm like, oh my God, this is a fucking
1: monster, drop dead, no guesswork hit. But what's interesting about that, and I'm interested in your opinion on this as a great songwriter, is it's a really strange song. Like, I sit around quite often and think about why songs are hits because I'm trying to recreate some of that. Now, I'm doing it in an industry where there's not a high premium on in something interesting, you know? there's not The premium is really on what's, what's a hook. What, the truth is, is that hit songs are kind of mysterious. Like, if you think about a lot of hit songs, they're strange. Like, one of your most commercial songs is 40 Dogs. That's a strange song. It's a strange song that you can't fit into a formula. You know what I mean? I mean, all I want to do is write hits. So
0: I'm not... Like, any time somebody... Like, recently somebody was like, hey, I want to get together and write a song. I have a feeling that they want to write, like, a hit country song. I have no interest in writing anything that's ever been written. I have no, no interest in it.
1: But you just said you want to write hits.
0: Yeah, because hits are songs you've never heard before. There's Like you hear it and you go, oh, I've never heard this song before. Right. And then it's a hit. And then all these dummies in the record business, hey, write a song like that one. I'm like, the reason that song's a hit is because nobody would ever
1: written one like it. You dummy. That's exactly it. Well, what happens is someone will do something original. It'll land with an audience. Because- yeah, like
0: that Old Town Road song. Like nobody knew right. that was going to be the biggest country song of all time. And now they're like, "Oh, write a
1: song just like that, kind of like half rap and half like country." Dude, this so my publishing company came to me and said, "We we're getting we're licensing the sh- people want Old Town Road, but we can't afford it because it's the biggest song in the world. Can you basically write Old Town Road?" Yeah. But but maybe with a female singer. Oh, but yeah. But basically Old Town Road. So I called my friend Matt Billingsley, who drums for Taylor Swift and he's a producer in town. And I called Jada Dreyer, who's an artist friend of mine, who's got a great voice, like a very interesting voice. And I told them cynically, I said, look, they want us to basically redo Old Town Road. So let's fucking redo it. We wrote a new lyric from kind of from a female point of view, but we basically followed the map of Old Town Road. We tweaked it a little bit, whatever. Yeah, We, we thought it was good enough to where we got it mixed and mastered. Sent it to the publishing company. They're like, hey, Everyone in the office fucking loves it. Home run. One small problem. It sounds too much like Old Town Road. <laughs> yeah. We're like, Jesus Christ, man. It's just it's just those people just chase a hit because something catches the ear or catches an audience. But by the time you regurgitate it 10 times, audience, something else has happened.
0: Yeah. None of those pencil pushers give a fuck about art. They'll, they'll lie to you. They'll lie to your face and say they do. They'll go, we love, we care about art. We want you, we respect your artistic, like, you know, vision. They don't give a fuck, dude. All they want to do is get the dollars and put them in their little stinky fucking wallet so they can go fucking get sucked off by some fucking dudes. All they
1: want to do uh, is, is get, get their sucked
0: d- off by some male prostitutes. Those motherfuckers.
1: Oh. Anyways, look, I'm digressing. Don't digress. What, what's what what what's that famous what's what's that famous passage from Oopsie Daisy?
0: <laughs> there's so many. There's so there's so many. I can't even remember. There's so many passages. Man, I'm looking at Elvis Costello's work from seventy eight and seventy nine. Oh my god, dude. That dude had a hot streak in those late seventies.
1: I, you know, I'm a good music student. I investigated Elvis Costello. I got the Imperial Bedrooms. I got the My Aim Is True. What's so funny about Peace? Okay, heard uh, heard all that. Kind of like it. I kind of like it. He's obviously an interesting cat. But p- I've got a few friends in my life that like Elvis Costello is like one of their top three. Yeah, that's not, and, that, and that's not and, true. No. It, it's, no. like pe- it's like people. It's like people whose top like three include like Rush, like beware of them. Just tread lightly.
0: Those in 78. I mean, I heard those songs like on the radio and I was 13, 14 years old. And when you hear a song at that age and it's on the and it's like a hit and you're hearing it and you're like going through all those changes in your life, it like embeds itself. And it's hard to even, it's hard to even like, you just think of it as a classic rock song. And so when you hear it, it brings up all the nostalgia of that time in your life. So it's hard to like,
1: peel it away from that. But I feel like most people are aware of that. Like, I'm aware that I have an unreasonable connection to Dave Matthews band or Kiss. I could name several bands that I know aren't really great, but they're great to me. I know the difference, right? Right. The Beatles are great. Um, whatever, we can name Tim. Tool is great. Tool isn't about me being a 13-year-old who liked scary music videos. A band like Tool has even found its way into your life, right? Like you can hear Tool and you're like, holy shit, there's something really different. This isn't just aggressive music for you know disenfranchised teenagers. This is something bigger than that. This isn't Marilyn Manson. But the people that are like, I remember we were in a van doing like a song swap and this guy was all this, it was all Elvis Costello and he would play these Elvis Costello songs and they were just like great on my psyche. Like they were just so hard to listen to. He played this one song called I Want You. Do you know that song? No. Elvis Costello song, I Want You. It's like seven minutes long and it's just this quirky bludgeoning, but it's not funny like Zappa could be. Like, you know what I mean? You know Zappa songs are like indulgent. And insane, but they're funny and weird. Elvis Costello is like super earnest, long, not a great voice. It's just hard.
0: Well, I'm looking at these songs: "Pump It Up," "Peace, Love, and Understanding." Every day, I read the book Oliver's Army. Like those songs, like I'm like those are some badass songs. But again, I've never played them. You know, when you when you actually do pick one of these songs up pick up a guitar and like look at the lyrics and look at the melody and look at what it actually is a lot of times they kind of fall short dude fucking youtube just put out this thing where they revisited some of their old songs i heard it and they kind of rewrote some of the lyrics yeah i heard it and then they did them acoustically with like an orchestra and so you could hear the lyrics dude that shit was so bad (laughs) <laughs> I was like, what the fuck, dude? It made me like re like think all of U2 shit. I'm like, is U2 just a fucking delayed guitar put on maximum with Bono kind of looking cool and singing high? Because, man, when you look at the lyrics and shit, like for some of those songs, like that Vertigo song, it is horrible.
1: You don't like Uno, Dos, Tres, Catorce, One, Two, Three, Fourteen?
0: uh no i mean they have a couple songs where you you know the lyrics like i still haven't found what i'm looking for like that's, that's a great song that's pretty fucking great lyric and great great lyric melody and all that but some of their other shit like the shit that they were doing in this concert this acoustic concert was pretty terrible like real terrible And I was like, what the fuck?
1: The thing that I took away from that recording, so I read Bono's book. He wrote this new it's basically an autobiography called Surrender. And it's it's basically his story through 40 U two songs. Right. And the edge, because it was pandemic times and everyone needed something to do, he knew Bono was writing that book. So he took those forty songs and like reimagined them with pianos and shit. And then he was he you know, the press about the album is like, you know, Bono's a an older man now and he sings with wisdom now and we wanted to capture like the older version of bono singing mysterious ways and pride in the name of love and shit i listened to it one time i couldn't get through one song because the truth is no one needs to hear an old bono kind of shittily croon through their great songs like dude mysterious ways Remember you know that song? Yeah. Wow don't wow. Dude, that's just an amazing recording and just a fucking strange, cool song about Well, that's
0: what I'm thinking like when I heard these songs like done acoustically, I'm like, oh, they just got some cool recording that kind of yeah. like it's kind of the song's a turd, but they got such a cool recording that you don't even you're not aware of it's a turd until you unwrap it and take all the music out of it, and you're like, oh, these lyrics and melody are not that great. But well, I remember I would, I remember yeah. when that came out, I didn't think that record was very good. Octune, Baby? Wow. I really, truly, I was like, man, they've really gone down the tube here. Wow. But then you hear a song so many times, it just kind of gets into your life or whatever, like that happy song, but Pharrell. And then after a while, you think, like, well, that's a hit, and I've heard it so many times, I'm familiar with it, so you think it's better than it is. But yeah. again... You hear it done acoustically like this, and it doesn't hold up. But dude, man, I saw Chris Christopherson play like 20 years ago. We were doing this concert in Austin, and he he got up. We it was when I was with. Uh, it was early on, and early on, I, I had the strings and the all these people playing. I had a huge band. We were doing like a couple great big rock songs. And then fucking Chris Christopherson gets up there with an acoustic guitar, no accompaniment at all, and starts singing that song, Take the Ribbon from Your Hair, which I'd heard a thousand times in my life. I'd heard my dad sing that song on the guitar. Take the ribbon from your hair, let it loose and let it fall. And I'd heard the recording of it. I had no idea what that song was. Then Chris Christophers gets up, and he's fucking old now. He's probably, I don't know, 65. I don't know how old the fuck he was, but he looked cool, skinny. Gets up there with an acoustic guitar. Doesn't really say anything. Gets on the mic. Take the ribbon from your hair.
1: I was like, what the fuck, dude?
0: I had never heard the song until that motherfucker (laughs) take the ribbon from your hair. (laughs) What? Dude, I'm taking the ribbon from my hair. (laughs) Let it loose and let it fall. It's on the ground, Chris. (laughs) How wide do you want me to spread my butthole (laughs) so you can get that dick all up in it how wet do you want my pussy right now
1: Uh, the power of song
0: jesus christ dude i had no idea that song was about him getting ready to fuck dude i'm telling you i was goosebumps chills i almost fainted and i was an adult man
1: what do you think, the, is there an equivalent power to Randy Newman singing you can leave your hat no. on or you can leave the no, light on? No, there's
0: no equivalent to anything. <laughs> I'll tell you that the closest thing, the closest equivalent I can tell you to that experience of hearing him sing that song naked like that was the documentary I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. So I watched that documentary and I was not a big fan of Leonard Cohen A friend of mine, Jeff Klein, the songwriter, told me to buy all his records. I bought all of his records, all the good ones, tried to listen to them. I couldn't get through them. They were horrible. Then I watched that documentary, I'm Your Man, and they had like Rufus Wainwright, U2, Antony and the Johnsons, all these people covering his songs. And when they were covering his songs,
1: I could finally hear the songs. I feel like Dylan's like that, and Neil Young's like that too.
0: Well- Having said that, I'm like, oh, these songs are better than I thought they were because the instrumentation's better cuz a lot of his instrumentations like from the 80s and shit, it's kind of like corny. Yeah. No, and no weird. one
1: no one references Leonard Cohen albums ever. No. No, no. It's all about his songs, his so, lyrics really.
0: So anyway, so they go through the whole movie all these people are covering his songs. I'm like, and and he's talking the whole time and you get to know him and turns out he's as cool as anybody that's ever oh, walked yeah. the earth. So by the end of it, you, you love the guy, you like, and you respect him as a songwriter. And then the, the last song is him singing, I'm your man. And the same thing, you're just like, oh, I get who he is. I'm hearing this song and he's singing the song better than any of these other dudes who are like known for being great singers and great performers.
1: Yeah. And he's that, better than all yeah. of them. That That's true. It's like you almost have to just understand the lens because I have a very serious pre and post Dylan thing now, because this Dylan thing happened to me about six years ago, five years ago. And I spent most of my life a very serious music listener kind of being like the Dylan thing. Ah, I mean, I get it. He kind of wrote some good songs. I'd rather hear Guns N' Roses sing "Knocking on Heaven's Door. But now I get, I get it. And so now there's almost nothing more powerful than Dylan doing it. Even if the recording's squarely, even if fucking Adele is singing To Make You Feel My Love, I would really rather hear him do it on Time Out of Mind at this point. Because the, the full dude came into view. Some artists are like that.
0: Dude, when you watch him playing those songs, like all those hits that he wrote in his early 20s or in his late teens, Mm. When you see him before he went electric and he was playing those folk concerts in front of like 40,000 people or whatever. And everybody was hushed, silent reverent. And then he's just up there kind of just like playing these songs, kind of looking off into the distance, like a weird alien. Yeah. Nothing's as good as that.
1: Someone asked him, he did a, he did like a, a 60 minutes interview where they asked him about something like one of those songs, like Mr. Tambourine man, which I think is probably his best song. And they they quote the lyric, like, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea. They're like, how did you do that? And he really considers it. Like, he takes him a beat, and he, you can see he's got these, like, piercing blue eyes, and he just goes, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I don't know. And he goes, you know, he's like, there are things I can do now that are better, that are different. Like, I have some tools now that I did not have then. He's like, but that shit that you're talking about, don't know how it happened. Nobody can do it again.
0: Nobody knows yeah. how to write. Nobody knows how to write any song that they've ever written. I know. All those songs that those guys wrote. Paul Simon doesn't know how to write Bridge Over Trouble Waters. He just no. wrote it one day. Totally. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to write another one and could never do it.
1: Well, that's why these masterclass things I find kind of annoying and disingenuous. Now, if you're doing a masterclass on how to produce a great vocal like Post Malone or how to like write a screenplay, or there's a lot of those that are great, right? But the ones with songwriters annoy me because they can't tell you how they did it. All Paul Simon can do is he can tell you what happened. He can probably recall the day he wrote Graceland. Well, you know, I had just been there. I was with my son. I was going through a divorce. I had this kind of cool corporate Like, he can sort of just tell you what happened, but he doesn't know how he did it. No. Have you seen that behind the, or it's the uh, classic albums where he's talking about Graceland and he's sort of, you can tell he's almost like getting it under his fingers for the first time in a minute. He's talking about how uh, the rhythm changes in verse two. She comes back to tell me she's gone as if I didn't know that. Like the whole downbeat changes on that lyric and you see him being like, yeah, that's really weird that I did that. And you see him and then he he pauses a little bit and he looks up and he goes, you know, I'll probably never write anything that good again. It, it, just, it was dawning and it's a sad moment kind of. Because he's made a lot of songs since then. When was Graceland? 1980? Yeah, but nothing came close to Graceland. Graceland was this
0: weird, because he had written, obviously read all that shit with Simon and Garfunkel, some some amazing songs. Then he had a, a pretty storied solo career, Kodachrome. Oh, yeah. Me and oh, Julio down by the schoolyard, still crazy, still crazy. School still still crazy, crazy. after the, all yeah. these
1: years. Uh, yeah. Slip sliding away. 50, 50 ways, ways to Leave. Your leave. Love. Yeah, just yeah. like
0: this string of fucking hits. And then it was kind of on the tail end of it. He thought like this, that One Trick Pony record kind of tanked. Um, He wasn't selling records. People were starting to write him off. He was getting old. And then he somehow, I mean, he didn't somehow. He just went to fucking Africa. South Africa and fucking recorded all these dudes and then used all that kind of like the way the beastie boys sampled led zeppelin and wrote license Ill," he did the same thing with this music that he collected and fucking came up with this fucking late in his career masterpiece not a bad song on the whole record it's no. truly one of my favorite right re- it's definitely in the top 10 of all time
1: Th- think about the songs that don't get like think about like of there was you can call me alan graceland but think about like boy in the bubble uh The Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. The whole, under African Skies.
0: The whole record is it, from beginning to end is truly a masterpiece. <laughs> it really is. And and then, you know, Rhythm of the Saints came after that. Yeah. And there was a little cup maybe a couple songs on that that were okay. Yeah. And then it was truly the end for him. But yeah. you know, he's still making records and and still making some pretty good songs on those records. So it's not yeah. like he quit, but yeah, he'll never he'll he's he's not coming out with a Graceland anytime soon. Which is a weird thing when you're a songwriter because, you know, I'm 57. The last record that I did in Full of Blood with the Sleeping Tiger, I feel like that's sort of like my, kind of like my Graceland in terms of, you know, I don't think I'm going to make a record that good again. And it came out at a time when, you know, it came it came out at a bad time. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Because the only awards I can the only awards I've ever gotten recognized were the Austin awesome Music Awards. And uh, last year was not a good year for me to get nominated for anything. And I, I I'll
1: let you guess why. I'm not gonna say why. Well, maybe we can hit that in the Secret Weekly. Before we go, I do want to say thank you to two new patrons, Adam Gwillen and Jennifer Freeman. Thank you guys for supporting the show. They are now uh, they've been given front row tickets to the secret weekly where we would go now and hear about why this year was bad for beach News and the Austin music awards. So join us there. If not, we will see you next week on the flippity Floppity. I will be in the UK um, for the next 10 to 12 days. If any of you are out there and would like to come to a show or meet up, hit me up on all the stuff and we will see you on the flip flop. Bye. Bye. <laughs>